This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphna, how was your weekend? Uh, it, it was good. It was good. I got some studying in, so I'm happy about that. And it's cardiology week. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, we are uh, shifting to cardiology. Um, this is fun. Um, this is a topic I, I mean, by the way, yeah. I am so dreading the future of this podcast because my <laughs> two favorite topics are POM and cardiology. <laughs> then here we are. You've peaked. And exactly. <laughs> this is all going downhill starting <laughs> next. Well, don't yeah. tell Dr. Brodsky, but cardiology is not my favorite subject. So <laughs> I guess let's uh, get into it. Well, I want to just do some one more housekeeping stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have to announce the winner of the Brodsky and Martin book series that we're giving away. I mean, that we're not really giving away, that Dr. Brodsky and Dr. Right. Martin are giving away. Um <laughs> So the winner is Suyog, and his Twitter his Twitter handle is at Suyog86. Thank you for for participating in the giveaway. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast and uh, look out uh, for a message from us, looking for your address so that Dr. Martin or Dr. Brodsky can ship those books to you. Yay! That's, this is fun. Um, Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, let's let's do this. Fine. Do I'll this go first. Go. go ahead. Okay. Cardiology question number one. I will say this is a good set of questions. I feel like they're super high yield, like the whole cardiology section in this book. But anyways, this is the first question. A prenatal ultrasound reveals an enormous echogenic focus in the fetal heart. That's not, that's never good. The postnatal echocardiogram reveals a large mass in the left ventricle, which is thought to be consistent with a rhabdomyoma. Which of the following diseases is most commonly associated with a cardiac rhabdomyoma? A, neurofibromatosis, B, McCune-Albright syndrome, C, Sturge-Weber syndrome, D, tuberous sclerosis, E, von Hippel-Lindau. Um, yeah, there's there's not much. I mean, this question is not much of a of a problem. I, I mean, the answer is D tuberous sclerosis. Mm -hmm. I I remember that they have these tubers everywhere, and um, and that it, this is a super common. Like it's one of these buzzwords that I remember that tuberous sclerosis. It has all these masses, and they can have them in the brain and and in the heart. They present themselves as rhabdomyomas. So uh, I'm sure you'll tell us why it's not the others. I don't right. think I, I don't remember. Let me let me be perfectly humble here. I cannot dice, di, I cannot give you a dissertation on every single syndrome that's mentioned right. here. But I don't think they're associated with uh, cardiac masses. So my answer is D tuberous sclerosis. Right. So some of them are associated with masses, but not the rhabdomyoma. So right. a little bit about the rhabdomyoma. It's the most common neonatal cardiac tuber. Um, they can be pedunculated. Um, they can be flat. They can affect um, cardiac output if they get really big or depending on their positioning. And it's most often associated with tuberous sclerosis. 
So let's talk about tuberous sclerosis, a disorder I will never forget because one of my most you know, vivid memories and fellowship was a baby with tuberous sclerosis. So. Really? I have never had a baby mm. with tuberous sclerosis. Oh, oh man. It must be terrible. Yeah. A darling, darling baby. Um, tuberous sclerosis is an autosomal dominant disorder. It involves chromosome 9 and 16. And so this is one where I, I think they will potentially expect you to know that. So autosomal dominant, chromosomes 9 and 16. Now, 50% of these affected babies, even in even in infancy, can present with the hypopigmented ash leaf macules. So that's another way they could um, change the question is ask you for the skin findings. So the skin finding in tuberous sclerosis is the ash leaf macule. And I have a gardening metaphor for you. Okay. <laughs> so, that's so, cool. so tubers are like like potatoes are things that grow yes. underground, right? So they're related, I think, of, you know, a place with a lot of trees. So the the ash leaf macule is related to the the tuber. Um, that's how you're going to remember it because we're going to talk about- I never think of that before. You're so right. <laughs> some of the other skin findings. Other findings we see in tuberous sclerosis, um, they can have intracranial um, tumors, which are, which are the cortical tubers. Um, they can have eye involvement. Seizures, um, unfortunately, is a significant part of the morbidity associated with tuberous sclerosis. They can have uh, mental deficiencies and enamel pits in the teeth. So that has come up in other um, review questions. Um, frequently, this is picked up um, on fetal imaging. So fetal findings can be arrhythmias depending on um, the location and the size of the cardiac rhabdomyoma, cerebral lesions. Um, some of these babies develop high drops because of the um, cardiac um, lesions. And then unfortunately, stillbirth is still a, a major presenting finding in the fetus. And then postnatally, the babies may present with nothing. They may present just with skin findings, and then you start going to look for the other findings. Um, And they can have respiratory distress, arrhythmias, murmurs, and um, cardiomegaly, um, again, associated with rhabdomyoma. And then, and then they may have seizure disorder in the perinatal period, um, but if not, they almost universally develop it into childhood. So let's talk about the others. So neurofibromatosis um, can have neurofibromas. So that's the uh, kind of uh, tumor-like lesion. Uh, They can have schwannomas. They can have pheochromocytomas. And the early findings um, in, in like the first year of life are the cafe au lait spot. Um, Cafe au lait spot, and then they can develop the axillary freckling. But in neonates, it's usually caffeine spots. So I think this is another point to remember. So the ash leaf macule in tuberous sclerosis is hypopigmented, um, but the caffeine spot is um, a, a darker spot. And the way to remember that is, I mean, cafe au lait. So cafe means coffee. So um, it's the it's a hyperpigmented lesion as compared to the ash leaf macule, which is hypopigmented. Um, next on the list, McCune-Albright syndrome. Um, so this is a classic triad of, again, cafe au lait spots, but these, uh, the most, this is an iconic cafe au lait spot, this coast of Maine, which has irregular borders, um, frequently on the thorax and reach midline. Um, they can have precocious puberty. That's the second, um, 
feature, and then polyostotic fibrous dysplasia, which is scar-like tissues in the bones. So they may have described um, limb shortening, abnormal gait um, in the face of cafe lay spots, and uh, again, they can have precocious puberty. Um, Sturge-Weber. Sturge-Weber is a vascular syndrome of the brain, skin, and eyes. It's not associated with any specific tumor. The biggest thing that you uh, will remember is a port wine stain, which this may or may not help people, but port wine stain has a PWS. And backwards, it's a SW. So Sturge-Weber has a port wine stain. I remember Yeah, I remember the W's like... Port wine is W and it's Weber. And Weber, yeah. Weber. Um, it's frequently found in the trigeminal distribution, is also associated with seizures like tuberous sclerosis, um, calcifications, glaucoma, and epilepsy. And then last on our list is von Hippel-Lindau. I don't know why. I, just reading that word <laughs> – makes me think of vascular tumors. I'm not sure why, but it's a cystic tumor disease. Um, they have greater risk of hemangioblastomas in the brain, the spinal cord, the retina, um, and they can also have pheochromocytomas. So that's why they put all these disorders together in this question is because many of them have skin lesions. Many of them have um, some sort of tumor-like lesion, um, and they can have neurologic findings. So I, I, I think this was a good review of, of these disorders. Yeah. Okay. All right. You, you're next. <laughs> Question number three. On day of life number one, a term infant develops expiratory strider. A oh. barium swallow study illustrates an indentation in the esophagus, suggesting of a complete vascular ring. Echocardiography confirms the diagnosis. So the question for you, Dr. Barbo, is of the following, which is the most likely cause of this infant's vascular ring? Choice number one is an aberrant left pulmonary artery. Choice, number, choice B is an aberrant right pulmonary artery. Number three is an aberrant right subclavian artery. D is an anomalous innominate artery, and E is a double aortic arch. Yeah, so I didn't know this. I didn't know the answer to this question. Uh, I think it's just one that we have to remember. But they did give us a hint. They said, "What is um, what is uh, the mostly cause of this um, vascular ring, which is a complete vascular ring, which?" should have led me to, to the answer. But I think I, I picked like the an anomalous artery, which is not the right answer. But The anomalous innominate uh, artery? Yeah. Yeah. No, so the answer is a double mm -hmm. aortic arch. And um, yeah, so this has to do a lot with cardiac embryology mm -hmm. and it has to do with pharyngeal arch development. Mm -hmm. uh, that yeah, I, I, was I, I vaguely remember that thing. I had to give a talk at the medical school That's about right. the head and neck development <laughs> using like it was the most atrocious lecture I but ever it, had to it prepare. Set you up for today. What? It set you oh, up great today. setup for today. <laughs> great setup. But yeah, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. I tried to make it as fun as possible for the students. Um, apparently, they liked it, so that that was good. Um, but man, pharyngeal arches, God. Um, so the first question is, what's a vascular ring, right? Mm. Um, so that. That's an abnormal development of the aorta that leads to some form of 
uh, encirclement of the esophagus and the trachea, right? And like you said, like there's two kinds. There's either a complete or an incomplete. And if you have a complete vascular ring, that means that the ring is fully formed, right? So it's complete. And it completely encircles both the trachea and the esophagus, um, which leads to compression of the trachea and the esophagus. Incomplete means it doesn't encircle all the way. Uh, and then obviously compression can be variable. So um, what is a double aortic arch. So the way I can explain this to the audience is um, imagine that the arch of the aorta, just like a highway, splits into two, encircles both the trachea and the esophagus, and then closes behind it. So it creates this sort of donut hole that just grabs on. Um, and that's there if the fourth uh, branchial arch, both on the right and the left, persist. Um, and each arch will pass above the, the main bronchus on the right and the left side, and then they will join together, and that's how they encircle um, both structures. And now when that happens, um, because the trachea gets compressed, you have respiratory distress and strider, which is what happens um, in this case. Now, um, if we are looking at the different types of vascular rings, right? So we have a double aortic arch, and that's the most common type of vascular mm -hmm. ring. So, uh, and that happens in 40% of cases. So this is important for mm -hmm. you to, to remember. Um, you can have a right-sided aortic arch with a PDA. That's the second most common. That's 30% of cases. You could have an aberrant right subclavian, um, which means that the uh, subclavian originates from the aortic arch itself. That's about 20%. You could have an anomalous innominate artery, um, and that's 10% of cases. And you could have an aberrant left uh, pulmonary artery, and that's like less, that's very little. It's like super rare. Um, and so I think um, there's something to be learned from this, um, obviously, the pharyngeal arches are give rise to a bunch of different structures, and and each one of them has arteries and and vessels okay. inside that are developing into future structures. The bottom line is that for our purposes, when it comes to cardiovascular development, uh, pharyngeal arch number three is involved in carotid development, and then pharyngeal arch number four um, on the left side is the arch of the aorta, right? So if you wonder why is the arch of the aorta left-sided is because it's coming from the fourth, left fourth branchial arch, right? And the fourth right uh, pharyngeal arch will develop into the proximal subclavian. Now, what you also need to remember for the test is that pharyngeal arch number six gives rise to your PDA. That mm -hmm. often is a question. So pharyngeal arch number six gives rise to your ductus arteriosus. Pharyngeal arch number four, left side, gives rise to the aorta. But you remember this because the left side leads to a left-sided aortic arch, which is the way it's supposed to be normally. Um, we'll talk more about the aorta this week. Uh, there's some cool <laughs> stuff. And was there anything else that I wanted to say? I don't think so. Um, yeah, the the only thing, um, and you alluded to this, is that it does uh, it compresses the esophagus also can lead to feeding problems. Oh, that's correct. Sorry, sorry about that. Yes, and yeah, and for those of you who are like me, who are like, what is the innominate artery? Um, yeah, so mm. the 
the other word for the innominate artery is the brachiocephalus. They're synonymous. That's it. Okay. Well, let's just move right along then. I have a question you're going to like. Question four. <laughs> a term infant presents at 12 hours of life with severe cyanosis. Echocardiography reveals pulmonary pressures greater than systemic pressures, tricuspid regurgitation, bowing of the ventricular septum into the left ventricle, and right to left shunting across the PDA. To manage this infant's pulmonary hypertension, inhaled nitric oxide is initiated. How will nitric oxide improve this infant's oxygenation? Okay. Oh, I didn't give you the answers. That's okay. <laughs> this is a the new version, the fill in the blank. Uh, so A open ended the open ended questions. A there are no fill in the blanks or open ended questions on the boards, just in case anybody. Thank God. Um, a decreases pulmonary vascular resistance. B decreases systemic vascular resistance. C increases peripheral vasodilation. D increases pulmonary vascular resistance, or E, increases systemic vascular resistance? Okay. So this is ask, this is asking for the mechanism of action of nitric oxide. Mm. Um, I think this is a very high-yield question. Okay. Uh, you need to know how all these different pulmonary hypertension medications work. Um, so nitric oxide, obviously, um, the way I would approach this question is, first of all, you know that this is treating pulmonary um, hypertension. Mm -hmm. And, and the one thing that's key, I guess, is the fact that inhaled nitric oxide, um, acts directly on the preferentially, I guess, on the pulmonary vasculature. So you know that this is a medication for pulmonary hypertension. That's going to make the pulmonary vasculature less hypertensive. So right away, uh, choice a sounds pretty good, right? Decreases pulmonary vascular resistance. Um, Decreases systemic vascular resistance. Um, I, I don't um, think so. I think increases peripheral vasodilation. I think that's other treatments that we could use for pulmonary hypertension, but not inhaled nitric oxide. Uh, increases pulmonary vascular resistance. If that was the case, then you would have worsened pulmonary hypertension. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely not true. And increasing systemic vascular resistance. I mean, that's pretty much right. I mean, uh, would that make it a presser? It's not, it doesn't mm -hmm. do that. So my answer, and I know that, I, I know it has to do with, uh, and I know that this has to do with CGMP, right? I know CGMP is like the one thing that all these medications are supposed to increase the production of and it relaxes smooth muscle. I don't have the whole mechanism on top of my head, but yes, I would pick a <clears throat> decreases pulmonary vascular resistance. Yeah, that's correct. So nitric oxide decreases pulmonary vascular resistance. And then you took all my teaching points already, but as a oh, review, yeah. <laughs> um, in the endothelial cells that line the pulmonary blood vessel, what nitric oxide does is it mediates vascular smooth muscle relaxation, like you said, through the cyclic GMP production. And that's what it does innately in, in, in vivo. So exogenous nitric oxide has the same effect um, with uh, inhaled nitric oxide entering through the alveoli and then diffusing into the adjacent vascular smooth muscle and endothelial cells. And it helps to treat pulmonary hypertension by decreasing pulmonary vascular resistance. 
And like you said, this is another question they could have asked the question about where is the kind of mechanism of action. So inhaled nitric oxide selectively dilates pulmonary blood vessels that are ventilated, like you said, because once the gaseous nitric oxide molecules reach the vasculature, they bind to hemoglobin, they become oxidized, and they're immediately inactivated. So that's why it doesn't work on the oh, systemic vasculature. Um, so just because it's it hasn't been inactivated yet when it's moving from the alveoli to the um, adjacent vasculature, and that's why it works in um, uh, relaxing, smooth muscle in the pulmonary vasculature. And thusly, peripheral peripheral vasodilation does not occur following administration of inhaled nitric oxide. Can I give you some? Um, can I can I say something else? Sure. So uh, the reason I was mentioning the other uh, forms of um, anti-pulmonary pulmonary hypertension mm. meds mm. is because they often ask you the mechanism, right? So the other right. two that uh, I remembered were sildenafil and mm -hmm. melrinone. Mm -hmm. And so they often ask you, how do these work? And both of them uh, block phosphodiesterase, uh, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a way to remember how they work. Tell and I'm not sure if we're going to get back to this this week, so that's why I wanted to mention it now. We are so not. So, for example, oh, milrinone blocks phosphodiesterase uh, 3A, okay? And the 3 has three legs, like an M. Mm -hmm. So phosphodiesterase 3 is milrinone. Okay. And then sildenafil is phosphodiesterase 5. And the 5 looks like an S, mm. like sildenafil. Very good. Uh, yeah. So I thought, I mean, that's how I remembered it for the test, and I thought that was super helpful. Um, so I thought I would share it because I'm not sure if we're going to get back to that. Very good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. That's that. Um, all right, Daphna. All right. That's it for today. <laughs> Sounds good, everybody. See you See tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Daphna. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.